you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. And we'll continue our series. through the book of Acts. This story is one that comes as kind of a shock. Everything's been going great. The church is doing well. Uh, We've seen now a second kind of summary at the end of chapter 4. We had one at the end of chapter 2, and now here at the end of chapter 4 of here's what's going on in the church, and there's unity, there's generosity, there's awe at who God is. And then there's not. And there's, in this case, judgment. And so the title this morning is that sin is serious. There is still good news for us, for those of us who hope in Jesus. But this is a text to help us consider that sin is serious. Uh, The kids in our three to six-year-old class heard this story about three, four weeks ago, a month ago. Um, We actually had uh, a couple, it was their their first Sunday as teachers in the class. They'd been going through training, had observed, and it's like, okay, here's your lesson. You gave me Ananias and Sapphira, really? It's just what was next. But a little baptism by fire for teaching the children's class. And so, though we have joy in the Lord, we have lots of reasons to praise Him, lots of reasons to celebrate, and we experience so much joy and unity being together. In this text, we're reminded that God is holy, that sin is serious, that Satan is active, and that we are responsible for the choices that we make before God. And we should fear. We should fear the Lord, knowing that we walk before him all our days. So let's read now that text. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you as we do every week that you have spoken to us through your word. Would you help us today as we consider this really difficult story? Would you help us to fear you as we ought? To remember that every moment is lived before you. And would you help us to know the free and full forgiveness that we can experience through Jesus? And would you help us to experience fellowship with you as we don't pretend that we have no sin, but as we confess it and turn from it by your grace? So we ask that you would work in us today. Work your will in our hearts and then work your will through us as we live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ananias and Sapphira, right? The way you tell it to the little kids is they lied and then they died. It's like, you have my attention. And you should. And this story really does come as a shock because just in the verses right before, we see this story about Joseph who we know better as Barnabas, who came, sold a piece of land, brought the proceeds, and laid it at the apostles' feet. We were told a couple verses before that that several people did that. He's given as kind of the example of that, and the apostles give him a new name, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira who do almost the same thing. They sell the land, they bring most of the proceeds, and they lay it at the apostles' feet. There's a reminder for us here that chapter breaks are not inspired. When Luke was first writing Acts, he didn't think, well, Acts 4, that was a great story. What should I put in Acts 5? Right? He's not writing Acts 4 and then Acts 5. He's telling us the story. And chapter breaks are helpful, because if we're like, turn to the 10th page in Acts, and our Bibles are all a little different. It's like, how do, we, how do we get there? So chapter breaks, verse divisions are helpful, but Luke's not, oh, I'm going to write a really good one in Acts 5, 1 through 11. It connects to what came before, and it'll connect, too, to what comes later. We'll see in a few minutes that it actually connects to some older stories that reveal to us the holiness of God and the seriousness of our sin. But we're meant to feel this contrast. Here's Barnabas, kind of acclaimed by all. Wow, what a great guy. Look what he did. He's the encourager. He took what he had and sold it and gave it to the church so that others would not be poor, that they would have everything that they need. Look at this great guy. Ananias and Sapphira would have known about that. And perhaps they thought, maybe we can get in on this. 
Wonder what kind of name we'll get that might go down through the generations. They certainly are remembered, but not exactly the way that they had hoped. One of the big questions for us as we consider, like, well, how how seriously should I take this story? Is, were these people in the story today who died as a result of God's judgment on their sin, God's immediate judgment on their sin, were they believers? Did they go to heaven? That's a question that I don't know that we can answer definitively, but it really seems like they are believers who went astray for sure and who experienced God's judgment for sure, but they're part of this church, part of this church that great grace was on them all. And so this is for all of us. You say, well, I believe in Jesus. Something like this can't happen to me. That's not so much the point. The point is for all of us to remember that sin is serious, and we must live in the fear of the Lord. The big idea is this. In the fear of the Lord, let us live honestly before God and others. In the fear of the Lord, let us live honestly before God and others. And we'll talk about what that means as we go through. But first, we want to see that God is holy. We've been considering his holiness already as we read from Isaiah 6, as Paul read for us from Philippians 2, as we began in Psalm 99. God is holy. He is set apart from his creation. We tend to think of holiness as like not sinning. That certainly is part of it. But he is holy. He is separate. He is above all. He is above us. He's different from us. He's not a lot like you, but maybe just a little bit more and without some of your problems. That's how we can tend to think about him sometimes. As kind of like the best person we know, but a little bit better. But he's not. We're not even in the same category. Yes, we are made in his image. But there is a a distinction between the holy God who created And the creature. God is holy. He is far above us, far beyond us. Even that picture from Isaiah 6 is trying to help us feel that a little bit, right? He's high and lifted up. He's beyond us in power and majesty and glory in every way. But part of what it means for him to be holy is that he is separate from sin. He's not only distinct from us, he is separate from sin. We're told he can't even look at sin. He can't abide it. And sin can't abide in his presence. Sin can't make it with God. And it's why everyone who persists in their sin, not trusting in Jesus, not receiving his forgiveness for their sins, his cleansing, his putting away of sins through his death on the cross will be separated from God both now and forever. God is holy. And we should stand in awe of him. He's holy and he wants his people to be holy. We learn that in the Old Testament and it's repeated in the New Testament. In 1 Peter, 
He repeats the Old Testament command. The same Peter who here is saying, Ananias, why did you do this? Is the same one who will write later. Remember, he said, be holy, for I am holy. And spends pretty much all of that first letter, 1 Peter, talking about what it means to live holy lives, distinct, different from who we used to be, and different from the world, because we have been set apart, we belong to God who is holy through Jesus Christ, and we have a different hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God is holy, and he wants his people to be holy, to be separate from sin, to be pure. God cares deeply about the purity of his church, way more than how much money we could give, because they still gave a significant amount of money. And we would probably be tempted. You know, it's like, ah, that's a pretty good donation, right? That, that's good. But Peter is not drawn away by this, as the Holy Spirit is at work in him to understand what is going on. He understands that God is holy and cares much more about the purity of his church than he does about how much money we could give or how many talents we have that we can lay before the Lord. In that same letter, 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18, Peter writes, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Perhaps Peter had this very episode in mind. He had seen firsthand judgment begin at the household of God. So God is holy. He must judge sin. Sin cannot stand in his presence. And God wants his people to be holy. Because God is holy, next, sin is serious. God is holy, and so sin is serious. Now, it's shocking to us, these few stories in the Bible where this happens, where someone sins, and immediately they are judged by God, and they are struck down, and they die on the spot. It's like, Whoa, I thought we were talking about a God of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. What is going on? Sin is serious because it is against a holy God. And we might even say, this isn't even that big a deal. I mean, they just didn't give him all of the money. I didn't give all my money in the offering box on the way in today. Am I next? No, All our sin is against this holy God. All our sin actually deserves what they got. Right? The kids can say it with me, and you'll be learning it again for VBS. The wages of sin is? Right. And we know it, and we say it, but then we're shocked when it happens. Because the good news is, God is so patient with us. Hasn't he been patient with you? Hasn't he been patient with me? Yeah, it's shocking 
when someone gets what they deserve. And it's so out of the norm that we feel like, how could God do something like this? The real thing that we should feel is, how could God not have already done this to me? He is so patient. He is so kind. He is so merciful. He is so gracious. He is so forgiving. So then we kind of get used to the idea, okay, God has the right to do this. And we should be grateful that it is so rare that it happens like this. Maybe I just need to make sure I don't do the sin that they did, right? Is it that there's a sin that they did that's the extra bad sin that merits instant death, and so I've got to make sure that I avoid that sin. What was their sin? Is that the point that I should avoid that particular sin? Well, sure, definitely avoid their particular sin, but also that's not really the point, right? Because God's response to our sin isn't always this immediate, but sin is this serious. But as we said, God doesn't usually do this. This is the only time the New Testament records an instant death for sin. But Paul does mention in 1 Corinthians 11 that people got sick and that some of them even died as a result of their abuse of the Lord's Supper, where some of them were coming to the table to show how great they were and how much they had, kind of at the expense of the poorer who didn't have as much to offer to the church. And he says that abuse highlighting differences and putting people in their place rather than remembering we all stand equal at the foot of the cross. Some became ill and some even died. But what is their sin? It's interesting the word that Peter uses in speaking of their taking the money, bringing only part of it. He kept back for himself. The idea is there that they stole. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same word that's used in the story of Achan. You remember his story? In Joshua, we like to remember that Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down, all that kind of stuff. But the kids know what happened, what else happened on that day. The walls fell down, they won the battle. But what did Achan do that day? Somebody tell me. Amelia, I see your hand like almost instinctively going up. It wasn't just to run your, right? Yeah. Yeah, God had told them, you go and you win the battle, but for this battle, you don't take any spoils. You don't take any any of their stuff. That's not what we're doing today. Anything that is gathered on this day must be devoted to God. It must be destroyed or it must be used for his purposes. And we're told that one guy, Achan, another one whose name lives in infamy, he looked at some of the robes, some of the coins, and he's like, those are nice. I could use some of that. Now, we can, again, we can get a little logical on him and go, 
you're wearing a garment that's from a different people than your people. Somebody would figure that, like, who are you going to trade that with, right? But he saw it, and he wanted it. And he took what God had expressly forbidden him to take. He stole what was God's. And he died along with all his family. So they stole like Achan, but there's another kind of theological connection as well. Because what was happening? God's people were coming into God's place. It was representing a new era in the work that God was doing. As they had come out of slavery, out of captivity, out of slavery, and then out of being in the wilderness and being lost and coming into God's land as they were supposed to be God's holy people in his holy place, one of them says, nope, this is mine. And the Lord says, no, it's not. And Achan is dealt with harshly by our standards. And now, at the beginning of the promised age, There are people who steal. And we'll talk about why it was stealing in a minute, because you go, well, wasn't it theirs? And Peter even said that. But they steal not money, because it really was their money. They were stealing glory that did not belong to them. They saw, again, they saw what Barnabas would have experienced. And perhaps they thought, we can get this. We can get some of that too. And so they're saying, yes, we gave it all. I mean, doesn't that look good? When there's someone who gives everything, and there's someone who really goes above and beyond, don't we rightly want to honor that person and be grateful for God's work through them? Maybe even give them a nickname like the the great encourager. And sometimes we can want that. And so they wanted God's church to think they were more than they were. To think they had given more than they had. And aren't we all tempted the same way? Oh, I'm extra committed. I read my Bible every day. Absolutely. That's what Christians do, right? So, of course, that's what I do too. I have a vibrant prayer life. Of course. I mean, at least you need to think that. Right? And we can be that way with one another. Oh, I couldn't make it to that, but it's because I'm really busy sacrificing over and all these other things. And I just want to make sure that you know how I give to other people. Aren't we tempted toward that? We want other people to think we're up here. Because we think they'll think less of us. They won't like us if they knew the real us. But God's the one we're lying to when we lie to his church. Their sin, we're told, is lying to the Holy Spirit. Lying not to man, but to God. You say, they lied to the Holy Spirit, they lied to Peter. Peter's not the Holy Spirit, but they lied to God's church. Where does the Holy Spirit live in this age? Where does the Holy Spirit live today? He lives in the church. He lives in us. So they're not just lying to people. They're lying to God. 
They're stealing not because they couldn't do whatever they wanted with the money that was theirs. They're stealing because they tried to say they gave it all when they didn't. And Peter reinforces this. Even though they were all in the church, as we talked about last week, rightly recognizing that our possessions don't really belong to us. They're given to us as a stewardship from God to use for his glory. We do still have bank accounts with our own names on them that don't have everyone else's name, right? You can't go to my bank and get money out of my account. It doesn't work that way. And it is, to some degree, up to me. Now, I need to be sensitive to the Lord's leading and ready to do whatever he would have me do with anything that I have. But I have control over that. I have control over how large the check is that comes to the church. I have control over when we're going to give to someone else to help them when they're in need or whatever other organizations we're going to donate to or whatever we're going to spend money on. I have some control over that. Now, I'm responsible to God for every bit of that, but it is my bank account, and it was their piece of property. And Peter's saying, you could have sold it for this much and then said, we're giving that much, and it wouldn't have been a problem. So the problem isn't that they didn't give enough. The problem was what they were trying to say. We've given it all when they hadn't. They were looking for a claim, for a spiritual level, a gift they'd given that was not the truth. They stole like Achan. And more than money, they were stealing God's glory. And God is a holy God who will not share his glory with anyone else. So sin is serious. This sin, but the point isn't to, okay, as long as I never do that, right? I'm giving you my whole bank account. As long as I remember not to do that, then I'll be okay and I don't have to worry about it. No, all sin is serious. All sin deserves a response from God like this because God is a holy God. God is holy. Sin is serious. Something else for us to consider as we try not to be like them is that Satan is active. Satan is active. We see this in verse 3. After they laid it at the apostles' feet, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why has Satan filled your heart? Now, this is important for us because you may have uh, heard about or thought about, like, what does it mean to be filled with something? We talk about being filled with the Spirit. Here we're talking about Satan filling someone's heart. Are we talking about demon possession here where someone can be just totally controlled by a demon? I don't think so. That's a different category. But they had allowed Satan to have a foothold in their heart. Satan is active. Peter, again in 1 Peter, the same Peter who's like, why did Satan fill your heart? Reminds us in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 that Satan is active. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. As all this good was going on, as there was so much blessing, great grace upon them all in this early church, Satan was active. You know that Satan is alive and active, and he is our enemy, and he hates what God is doing. He hates that we're going to be baptizing five people today. He hates that. He hates God's work. He hates God's people. And he will do anything he can to disrupt God's work, to disrupt the unity of the church. The good news is, though he's active, though he's powerful, he is not even close to being as powerful as God. And he is already defeated. There's a way in which his activity now are just kind of some last gasps before he is ultimately destroyed. He is already lost. Jesus has already won the battle on the cross. But it's interesting, Jesus had already won the battle on the cross here. He had already won it when Peter wrote 1 Peter. So we don't just go like, whew, glad I missed that one. No, tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Now, Satan is also limited. He's limited in his power. He's also limited in the place that he can be. He is not omnipresent. So Satan himself probably doesn't have too much to do with us here. There are probably other people doing bigger and more important things for God, maybe more of what God is calling them to than ours, but we know that Satan also has a team, right? And he has demons, fallen angels, angels who fell with him, who are active. Now, we can't see them, and especially in America, it sounds really weird, but our brothers and sisters who are from Africa are like, yes, we know what you're talking about. We've seen it. And so maybe here we're so used to like, well, we just live, we make our choices, we do our things. There's a psychological explanation for everything that happens. But especially for those who have been in other parts of the world, there is a spiritual world that we cannot see that is active even now. Now, Satan cannot win. He cannot have us forever. But he can do damage to the church as he did here. So we need to be reminded, not just that God is holy, not just that sin is serious, like, okay, we've got to, we do this. We are in a spiritual war. Are you aware each day as you rise and as you go to work, as you go about your day, that you are in a spiritual war, that you have an enemy who, if he could, would destroy you? And at the very least, desires to disrupt your fellowship with God and your fellowship with other believers. And that he's tricky, that he wants you. But then are you also aware that Jesus gave his life and rose showing his power over sin and death and Satan 
And one day, Satan will be defeated. So God is holy, sin is serious, Satan is active, and even while Satan is active, we are responsible for our actions. We are still responsible for the choices that we make. Satan filling their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit doesn't mean they had no control over what they were doing. We can never say, the devil made me do it. You ever use that? We use that kind of jokingly sometimes. But we can never use that as an excuse. God doesn't say, oh, oh yeah, that's right. There is some demonic activity there, and so it's fine. Even when there is satanic activity, we are responsible for our choices. So we see in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? But look at the end of verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You're like, Peter, come on, figure it out, man. Did Satan do this or did they? Yes. Yes. And so we need to be aware that we have an enemy and be ready to fight against him. But we are responsible. It's not one or the other. It is is both. So Ananias and Sapphira were responsible for their sin, and they answered immediately to God, as one day everyone will. So what's our response to a story like this? We go, okay, this is, this is big. God's holy, sin serious. Satan's active. We're responsible. What do we do? What is our response? Just briefly here in closing. One, fear God. If there's like the one thing, fear God. And we see that a couple times in the text with each one who died. Verse 5, Ananias, when he heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And after Sapphira dies, verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of it. Of these things. What is the proper response to a story like this where we see someone because of their sin get what they deserve? Fear. Paul in Philippians 2.12 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's not that we make it happen, but as we live as God's people, we live in awe of him. Aware that every moment, every moment, whether anyone else is there or not, is lived before a holy God who gave his own son for us. We fear God because he is holy and he will not share his glory with anyone else. The author of Hebrews says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. So first, fear God. Second, resist, resist Satan. Remember that we still have an enemy. Yes, he's ultimately defeated, but he is still active today, and we don't want to give him even a toehold in our lives. So fear God. Resist Satan. Tell the truth. We had the big idea that we want to live Honestly, that's what they had failed at. It wasn't that they didn't give enough. 
They didn't live honestly. We do not have to try to look better than we are. This isn't a church where we are in competition for who can have the most good deeds and look the best and be the one that everyone knows. Well, they're obviously the most holy and I could never attain to that. No, every one of us would stand guilty before God. And not just for the things we did before we became Christians. Every one of us would stand guilty and condemned before God. But every one of us who has turned from our sins and entrusting and is trusting in Jesus can stand before him with confidence, not in ourselves, not even our record now that we're Christians, like, oh, I'm so good now. No, we still stumble and fall. So we can tell the truth. God knows you for who you really are. You may be concerned about what other people think of you. God already knows everything about you. And that person is the one that he sent his own son to save. Where in our sin we know we've got to pull back. We should be separated from God and from each other. It's in that state, it's while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. And he comes to us again in mercy and grace, calling us to come back to him. So tell the truth. We can tell God and others the truth about who we really are and what we have really done. And as we do that, last, confess and forsake our sin. Even in the purest church, even in this first church where it's like everything's great. They're looking to the Lord. They're looking out for each other. The Holy Spirit is so active among them. Even in that church, there was sin. So in this one, there is too. In every church, in the purest church, there is still sin. So what do we do about it? We confess it. We forsake it. We turn from it. And we also, as we are the ones who are sinned against, we should be ready to forgive others. All in the fear of the Lord. 1 John 1.9 is one of my favorite verses, and if you're here a lot, you know that because I end up quoting it quite a bit. John had written to the church so that they would not be stuck in their sin, would not continue in sin, and he tells them we're liars. We're not telling the truth if we try to pretend like we don't have sin. So it's a little different than what Ananias and Sapphira were doing, but it's the same kind of concept. Oh, who, me? I mean, we're all sinners, but not really me. Not that, right? It's funny how we're good at like, oh, sure, I'm a sinner. And it's like, well, what you did right there, I'm pretty sure that was sin against me. No, 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 not that, not me, not now. Just generally, we're okay with being labeled sinners, but not particularly. But he says, don't do that. He says, we lie and don't practice the truth if we say that we don't have any sin. Instead, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's written to the church. It's written to us. We will sin. We will stumble and fall. And our sin will sometimes even be against each other in the church. That's not time to go, well, they're a terrible person. I'm out. 
It's time to remember we have all sinned and we all still do struggle with sin. And so we want to confess sin where we have sinned and we want to be ready to forgive sin because God is faithful and just. It means it's the right thing for him to do to forgive our sin. It should be the right thing for him to do to judge our sin, but because he has judged our sin in his son Jesus on the cross, for everyone who hopes in him and who comes to him confessing their sin, now it is the right thing to do for God to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So fear God, resist Satan, tell the truth to God and one another, and confess and forsake our sin. Thank God that he doesn't usually deal with sin this directly. In the fear of the Lord, let us live honestly before God and others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us and we ask that you would help us. You would help us even now where we are harboring sin where we are doing our best to look better than we are rather than just honestly telling the truth about who we are and seeking to turn away from our sin and turn again to you who welcomes us. You who are so far above us sent your son so that we could be welcomed by you and we wouldn't have to shrink back from your presence. Oh, we thank you for that good news. Would you have that good news sink down deep into our hearts and cause us to be a church that fears you, that resists Satan, that tells the truth to you and to each other, and that confesses, forsakes, and forgives sin like you have forgiven us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.